I want to talk today uh, kind of a different approach to this idea of the prodigal son, one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. Um, it's always kind of treacherous to approach a story that everybody kind of knows, but I'm going to do what I can with it today. Now, um, Alan was the son of loving parents who were deeply committed Christians. Through their influence, he accepted Christ at an early age, but a family move proved to be a difficult transition for Alan. He found himself drawn to peers whose lifestyles were at odds with his parents' faith and example. By the time he was in his early 20s, Alan had become not only a drug user, but also a dealer. Sometimes those things go together. This proved to be so profitable that he decided to move to a major coastal city and expand the operation. One evening soon after the move, a police officer confronted Alan and his cronies and asked to search their car. A panic flight ensued, but they didn't get far, and Alan didn't call his parents, who'd been distressed for years by his decline into sin. From jail, he instead called a friend. The friend contacted Alan's cousin. The cousin informed his own father, and the man broke the news to Alan's parents. Alan's father immediately drove more than three hours in the middle of the night to post bond for Alan. Through his parents' efforts, Alan was not only restored to sobriety, but also to Christ and to his family. He is certain, he would say later, that he would have taken his own life if his parents hadn't demonstrated that kind of love. Now, if you've heard that kind of story, or maybe been a part of that kind of a story, on one side or the other, um, the return of a prodigal child, the parable that's in today's lesson can have a special meaning for you. But one of the things that you and I need to recognize today, and I'm, I'm going to try to lead us through, is the fact that that kind of use of that parable should be recognized as what we would call an extended application of the parable. Jesus really crafted that story. And can you imagine uh, the wonderment of those who first heard it? Jesus really crafted that story for a different purpose. It's not really talking about restoration of family and sons. And we're going to look today about the purpose for which he originally intended it, but we're going to make sure we catch the other purpose as well. Now, you and I know that everywhere Jesus went, he told people to prepare for the kingdom of God, for its coming. He ushered in the coming of the kingdom of God. That's a pretty complex concept with many doctrinal and ethical implications. So Jesus would use stories, parables, as illustrations. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan was more effective at communicating the idea of neighbor love than a philosophical discussion would have been. He tells that story. He told them um, often. And those parables often are oversimplified as just being called earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. That's true. But Jesus didn't just use parables to make difficult concepts comprehensible to audiences of common people. He didn't just use agrarian uh, references, for instance, to illustrate things because they were agrarian people. When multitudes gathered during the height of his popularity, Jesus actually used parables for just the opposite reason. He would use a story that confused them and kind of thinned the herd, which I find really intriguing. Those who really were interested, those who were really interested in following him, would catch him afterwards and say, Master, explain to us. And he would 
teach on that. So it's interesting. It wasn't just that he was putting the cookies on the bottom shelf and making it easier to understand the complex. He also would take some of those concepts and really he would veil some truth in them uh, through the use of a parable. For the, and he would use that for those who really wanted to know. But at other times, Jesus used a parable to address Jewish leaders, hypocrites. These stories were often meant to be kind of in-your-face tweaks aimed at their hypocrisy. It's interesting that the key to understanding the three stories in Luke 15 uh, is going to lie in understanding who he's talking to. The three parables there directed are similar. They were meant to be clear rebukes of some pious people, some leaders, who disdained Jesus because he loved sinners. Okay? Catch that now. The original purpose of the parables, including the one we're going to study today, was to um, rebuke those who were unaccepting of those who were living a sinful lifestyle and those who were kind of trying to follow him and, and, and repent of that. Now, so... With that as a backdrop, I want us to read, Bob's going to go to verse 11, and we're going to read down through 16 to start a very, very um, common story, a story that you've heard a lot. Okay, now, I want to go back here to verse 1 and 2 and talk for just a minute here about who the original audience was. What's the point? Now, remember, he's going to use these stories, and there's three of them back to back to back. He's going to use these stories to, to uh, kind of get in the face of those who were kind of unwilling to be accepting. He also is using this story to describe, really, it's interesting uh, misnomer in some ways that in our Bibles it will say the story of the prodigal son. Does your Bible say that? It'll say the prodigal son? What, is it, what, what does yours say, Sally? It's the parable of the lost son. Parable of the lost son. What I was reading from this morning, I think, said, uh, uh, yeah, the lost sheep, the lost coin, but it says the prodigal son. Um, so it might say the lost son. What really ought to be in that paragraph heading is the loving father. He's really the central player in the story. Now, let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Somebody read the first couple of verses. This is going to tell us who he tells these stories to and for what purpose. Somebody read 1 and 2. Same chapter. Okay, what are they ticked about? He's having a hot dog with people's of, of reputation. 
Having a hot dog is one of the problems, okay? It's only one of the problems. All right. Uh, Steve, since you're still there, read verse 10 as well, would you please? What happens in heaven when a sinner comes home? A party, you know? Jesus knows about that. He's been in on those parties, right? He understands that. Now, here is the Pharisaical view. I read this from Alfred Edersheim this week, uh, who is quoting some of the rabbinic teachers. Here's the Pharisaical view from Jesus' day. Literally, the Pharisees said, now remember what Steve just read. There's great rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes home. Here's what literally the Pharisees said. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That's, Jesus turns this thing completely around. Instead of saying God is happy when those who provoke him die, basically, which is the teaching of those who had challenged him in verse 1 and 2, Jesus turns it on his head and says, no, 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 you guys got it wrong. There's great rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes home. And so he begins to tell a story about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost boy. And we're going to kind of drill down on the lost boy story here. Now, so the story was first told not to people. You know, I think we kind of think he might have been talking to, um, you know, guys that were in trouble and disenfranchised and needed to come home. He's not talking to that crowd. He's talking to a hostile crowd when he originally spins these stories. And they have an impact on them um, that is it's kind of predictable. Now, interestingly, if you look at verse 12, Jesus, in most of his stories, puts a twist in the story somewhere. Don't you love a story you read, or you read or have somebody tell you, and the reason it's either funny or interesting is it has some kind of twist in it, unexpected, right? Well, the funny thing about this story, as Jesus tells it, he puts the twist at the beginning of the story. Okay, let's talk about that twist. The son asks for his inheritance now, while dad's still alive. Now, if you and I read back in Genesis 25, I just put one reference in there. There's a reference in there to um, Jacob and Esau. The problem with Jacob and Esau is that Jacob wanted Esau's birthright, which meant he would get more of the inheritance when dad died than he did, than this as, as the second one. Okay, that, that is uh, kind of biblical law there, kind of dealing with. Would somebody go to Deuteronomy 21, and just read, I want us to read verse 17. Deuteronomy 21, 17. It's in the context of some other things, but it's going to illustrate what I'm talking about here. What the difference would be between the inheritance of a first son and a second son. Somebody get it? Deuteronomy 21, 17, fifth book of the Bible. Think, oh. Now, don't get 
tripped up on the unloved son. This is in context of uh, a, a man marrying two wives and he loves one and not the other. But the, the fact here that Cindy read is, is that the firstborn son, regardless of all that, gets double the inheritance. So what literally our, the son in our story here is asking in verse 11 and 12 is he comes to the dad and says, I know you're still living, but I want my part of your estate, which would be basically unless there were other siblings, which we don't know about in the story, wants a third of all that you have. Am I doing the math right? Phil, check me out. Am I doing the math right? Okay, all right. Always got to have a CPA in the crowd to keep you honest. All right, so he's asking, not only requesting for a third of his estate, which is coming to him when dad dies, but he's asking for it now. Now, You think his dad is just naive and rolling over on this? I think it's kind of interesting here uh, to think of what uh, I want us to go to. Would you kind of put, put a finger in the book of Proverbs? Let's go to Proverbs 20. We're going to also be in 29 in just a minute. Proverbs 20. Aren't you glad you found your outline so you can know ahead where to go? 20. An inheritance, this is 2021, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Interesting. This is kind of this, uh, this boy is the poster boy for that, right? An inheritance gained in a hurry won't be blessed in the end. Uh, I find that just kind of uncanny. Um, look, look at 29, 23, again in Proverbs. Somebody beats me there, read it. 29, 23. Talks about pride. Now, the essence of the prodigal here is illustrated, I believe, in uh, as is the motive of his actions. What would you say the motive of the prodigal is? Greed could be part of it. Certainly, I want some money. I'm sorry. There's a, brat, there's a brat motive at work here, yeah. Pleasure seeking. What? It could be some jealousy. He's independent. Now, let's go there, Joanne, because I wonder if the main motive here is that he's being treated well. He just didn't want somebody telling him what to do. It kind of sounds like that. Okay, does that sound like anybody you've ever known? Okay, all right. Let me, I could fill a legal pad, both sides, okay? He just wants his independence here. I want to do what I want to do. Um, this is not, Dad, I want to buy my own farm, start my own business. He would probably, I mean, he would have blessed that, certainly, right? This is not that. This is, I don't want to live under your oversight anymore. Now, yeah, Bob? He became rich in a day. Now, I want us to think here a little bit 
about this. Now, by the way, I've got to drill down just a little bit on what we're dealing with here, okay? Um, by one count, well, uh, a man decided to visit his newlywed son and his wife. While he was there, the father turned on the lights all over the house. He left them on as he walked through the house. You know where this is going, don't you? When the son asked his father what he's doing, this odd behavior, the father replied, remember all those years when I begged you to turn off the lights and not waste electricity? I've been waiting for the chance to show, see how you like it now that you're paying the electricity bill. I think my dad probably did that to me at some point. Now, but he did it lovingly with a smile. Now, there probably, at one count, there are 2,350 verses in the Bible that address the proper and improper use of money. Money management is not what this parable is about, but it's certainly embedded in there. Neither is it intended to give hope to parents who are estranged from their children, although it does. Jesus wants the characters and their actions in the story to point to a different reality, how the wasting of one's spiritual inheritance is recognized and properly addressed. The verse, uh, it's interesting, I looked the word prodigal up, in Bible dictionaries, I didn't find it. Why? It's not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. It's in a paragraph heading in some Bibles. Okay, so, but the word prodigal uh, is often associated with his decision to rebel against parental oversight, leave home prematurely. But the word actually means, Phil, you're going to like this, okay? The word actually means Recklessly wasteful of one's property of means. It's wasting that which has been lavished upon me. Now who does it sound like he's talking to? Those who have been given the faith. And now the living, breathing word of God is standing before them. Kind of seems obvious, doesn't it now? The definition points to the son's poor stewardship more than his desire to cut ties with his family, even though those things are true. So I've got to kind of deal with it in that context. Now, in verse 14, we see him going and being prodigal. What did he do as a prodigal? He spent money, lavished money, the money that was lavished on him, graciously poured on him, he spent it, he squandered it. He was a prodigal in that sense. Verse 14. By the way, a famine then ensues. I find it kind of interesting here. Famine in the Bible was severe and often commonplace. Um, it usually was the result of drought. The word famine or the idea of famine occurs more than 100 times in the Bible. It was a troubling element here. And so Jesus then in verse 15 uh, introduces a really troubling element to the son's plight. Not only is he hungry because of the famine, he's run out of money, he can't buy. You know, he, he would have been in pretty good shape even during a famine with the inheritance he'd been given. But he blew through all that, right? He could buy bread, but now he doesn't have the money to buy bread. And prices are escalating. All right, so Jesus introduces a really intriguing and disturbing reference here. He does it in lots of his stories and in some of his work 
that's going to make them really crazy. He introduces the word that goes in the blank there is the word troubling. Element to the son's plight. What is it? You ready? Bacon. Bacon. Who doesn't love bacon? Jews don't know anything about bacon. All right? I read, a, I read an, an article this week. Uh, this is on a Fox News site. You can now get in New York City a bacon-wrapped deep-fried hot dog. I want to go there. <laughs> you can get in, uh, in Bray, in the Berkshire, UK, in the, in, in the United Kingdom, at a place called the Fat Duck, and I kind of know why it's called the Fat Duck now. Bacon and eggs ice cream. Okay, you can get, Burger King is going to bet again this summer. They've done it before. They're going to do a bacon sundae this summer. Ice cream sundae with bacon in it. All right. Um, a place called the Sticky Pig in Costa Mesa, California. You would expect this in California? Um, you can get bacon confections, chocolate-covered bacon of all kinds of time, all kinds. Uh, you can also get uh, spicy peanut butter and caramelized ban banana with your bacon. Or uh, you can get one with sweet curry and coconut and lime and white chocolate on your bacon. Uh, okay? Jesus kind of gets to them here by introducing to the story bacon. <laughs> he begins to work with pigs. I put some references here. We looked at them a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the Gerizim demoniac. What's the problem with, with pigs? Besides the fact that they're dirty and all that, they're, it's forbidden for a Jew to mess with them. They're going to assume this is Jewish boy being told about in the story. He's not only around pigs, he's kind of working for them. All right. And so there's this kind of disturbing thing. Could it get any worse? Literally, as, as, the, as Jesus tells this story to these pharisaical people, as he tells this story, they're going to literally cross their arms and say, how could he? How? My word. Does he have no self-respect? Bacon. To make it worse, he began to kind of crave in the story that which they were eating. By the way, I just have a thought on Phariseeism. It's not a very theological thought. <laughs> if the Pharisees were not eating bacon, no wonder why they were so cranky. <laughs> a little bacon would have fixed some of that up, I think. You know, pulled pork sandwich, maybe. Whatever. Okay. No. All right. How dare he? I mean, literally, you can kind of hear it from the back of the crowd. Some guy, how dare he? So, Jesus goes on with the story. There's a reference here in verse 17, which we'll get to in just a minute. Evidently, the, the idea is that, that this young man was from an affluent family. 
Because it talks about what all he has coming back to him when he gets back home, beginning in verse 17. In fact, as he thinks in verse 17, my dad has hired hands. That tells you that he must have been affluent, okay? The idea here is that being from an affluent family, the son couldn't be any lower. He had to hit below rock bottom. And he's going to begin to put together a speech. Now, Bob, you're still back there. Read through, go to 17 and read through 20. By the way, thanks for wearing purple today. I can spot you in a crowd. Now, the son, I believe, begins to think about life at the father's table. I think you and I would too. I remember being long ways from home with not much money to put together. I remember the days where the four of us could not afford McDonald's. And I remember thinking, I wonder what mom's having for lunch today. <laughs> you know? Uh, my friends used to come to my house, and uh, I've got a friend that we'll have lunch with today who would say, he, it would literally be us and Bill, and he would say, who else is coming today? Because the table was always laden with food. This young man began to think about life at father's table. And suddenly his former life now doesn't seem so bad. Now my question is here, as we read verse 18 and 19, he begins to rehearse a speech here. Kind of put a speech together for when he gets back. And my question is, has the father cut ties with his son? And I think the answer to that is not apparently. Um, the son doesn't expect a rejection from the father when he goes back. He assumes that he can return. Now, by the way, that's kind of presumptuous, but he does assume that he can return. But how? And so he begins to write a speech. Now, he doesn't write it with pen and paper. He begins to compose it in his mind. And my guess is he rehearses it all the way home. He begins to put that together in verse 18 and 19. Now, we said Jesus spends three stories in this chapter, but by verse 20, unlike another story in this chapter, which, if you remember, this, the chapter begins with him, and he deals with these Pharisees uh, by uh, illustrating by the story of the good shepherd or the, the story of the lost sheep. What's the action in the story of the lost sheep? The shepherd leaves the flock, the 99, and goes to find the one lost sheep. Does the father do this? No. That's, there's a distinction here. The father doesn't come to get him. But will he be willing to receive him? Yes. At issue is uh, welcoming the wayward back without enabling destructive behavior. That is a real, real challenge in our day, isn't it? 
It's always been that way. Am I going to accept them or am I going to pay this for them and thus enable a continuation of a destructive pattern? I, I have heard it said by preachers all my life that dad went to the window every day looking down the road. I believe that. But notice, at no time does he leave the farm and go looking for it. You can make out of that what you want to. But he doesn't close the door. Dad does not take the initiative in a search like the shepherd does in the first story. But he welcomes him when he comes. Now we got four more verses. Bob, you got time to read 21 through 24? Okay, I need somebody, if you will, to go to Isaiah 61.10. We'll get there in just a minute. Eileen, will you get that one? Okay, now, the son's speech, remember he's been rehearsing the speech, it fits his plan. He goes and immediately launches into the speech. Dad, you know, he's, he's, he's there on the porch, he comes home, the son immediately begins to share the speech that matches his plan here. What is obvious here now to me is that Jesus is not just telling, though, a heartwarming story about family reconciliation. Rather, all of us who have squandered God's love and grace have, have a kind of a, a story to be learned here. And my question comes then as I begin to read verse 21 and 22 and in here. As he rehearses, as he kind of now shares the speech that he's been rehearsing all the way home, what will the father do? And he does another twisty thing here that is not normal. It's not um, out of the out of the uh, Jewish dad playbook. It's surprising. All right. So now let's shift. To the father's response. What does Isaiah 61.10 say? I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And arrayed me in the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. And as a bride adorns herself Isaiah says what's exciting to him is the way that God has clothed him in more than he deserves. Now, here's what Edersheim says about what the father did. The word that goes in your blank there is the father's response. Here's the response. Quickly, the servants are called to bring forth what is known as the stola, the upper garment of the higher class. Not everybody wears these. And that the first and the best this instead of the tattered and coarse raiment of this former pig herder. 
the stole it. Bring it. Bring the best one we've got. Put it on him. Secondly, the finger ring for his hand uh, and the sandals for his unshod feet would indicate the son of the house. He is not returned as a servant. He's returned in his dad's response to being a son, to sonship. To mark this further, he says, here's a ring, I want you to put it on. Here's sandals, I want you to put them on. No, he doesn't do that. He has the servants put them on him, which would indicate, again, being the son of the house. Uh, Mastership is implied here. An employee and a master. Evidently, then, he when he says, let's do a barbecue, he, he just parenthetically refers to a fattened calf. What you and I need to hear right there is that he's had a calf fattening up, waiting for this moment in time. Waiting for it. Just waiting for the son's return. It couldn't be more gracious, more merciful. Now, Original listeners to this will think the father's response to the son is scandalous. You can put that word in your last blank there before uh, the application. He's gone too far. But it causes me to think this. What does God think about sinners? And therefore, what should I think? What does God think about those who are far from him? And what should I think? And so... Let me read verse 24 one more time and we'll apply it and then we'll go. This son of mine, the dad says, was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they begin to celebrate. Rhonda's dealing with a little compassion fatigue this week. He's got a lot of really sick patients and one of them, we got a text on the way to Missouri Friday night, passed away. The outstanding good news after this good girl shared her faith and a loving wife shared her faith is that this man who had been resistant to the call of God on his life for decades, just a few weeks ago, received Jesus and now he's in heaven. The lost is found in Luke 15. The dead is alive. That's what the dad says. It's not just I found that which was lost. It's that who was dead is now alive. I want to ask you a question. Because I think a lot of this story has to do with forgiveness and whether or not you and I can forgive, if God can forgive. Those who are standing in the corner saying, oh, come on. We're kind of grace busters. They, were lack, they had a, lack, a monumental lack of forgiveness. Here's what Lou Smead says back in a book in 2001 that, that I have um, used to, to feed my soul several times, a book called Forgive and Forget. Um, you and I talked about this book, I think, years ago, Sherman. Here's what he says. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Forgiveness, can I say something to you? You can't. You can't. 
yeah, but you really don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they did to me. I'm just going to tell you, you can. You can. The key is, you got to trust him first. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to measure out grace and mercy in the most appropriate way? Do you trust him? When called upon to forgive, when, when this dad stood on his porch and saw this ragged boy coming down the lane, don't you know he said to God, I believe, I believe. Do you trust him? We'll be in Luke 17 next week. I hope you'll park there with me, okay? Have a great Sunday.